This week at Hope Point. We would tremble today if we had an aerial shot of the nation and to look at how many places, how many stages, how many pulpits around the country where what is being taught as truth is not true, but it's false. And churches are filled with people who come and are trusting that the one who's speaking is telling them that which is true when it is false. And these people from the community are drawn to these great churches because of the music, because maybe a charismatic, compelling personality. So yeah, there's a lot of churches that Satan would enjoy for you to be a part of because you will be lulled away from holiness, away from world missions, away from God Himself. We're so glad to have you join us for today's message. We pray that it would challenge and encourage you to applaud God, follow Christ, and live on mission. Let's listen now as Richard speaks to us from God's Holy Word. While we focused um, two weeks ago on the devastating effects of Hurricane Ian, which was the fourth largest, most powerful hurricane ever to hit the U.S. coast, the people of Pakistan, seemingly unnoticed by our national media, were living through their fifth month of devastating monsoon rains. It's the worst flooding in the history of the country. The monsoons, which began in mid-June, sent a torrent of river down from the mountains in the north down to the, down the Indus River, which divides the country in half. They received nearly twice as much rainfall as they ever have uh, in, their, in their history. Uh, eight weeks of nonstop rain fell on, on Pakistan. 370,000 houses were completely destroyed and 17,500 schools were damaged or destroyed. One third of the country is underwater right now and the water is not expected to recede for six more, a total of six months. To date, more than 1,500 people have, have been killed, eight million have been displaced and the army has established relief centers in 147 different relief camps. Once again, what a blessing it is to live in this country where recovery, though not desirable, is much more possible than in many places of the world. So I tell you the story of Pakistan's flooding for two reasons. Number one, just so you would know and that you would grieve. The heart cannot grieve what the eyes don't see. Second reason I want to talk about devastating flood is you would understand the metaphor in the book of Revelation chapter 12 when the writer talks about a flood that is attempting to overtake the people of God. You will understand the strength of that metaphor and when you see the power of water. Revelation chapter 12, when the dragon saw that he had been hurled to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. The woman was given two wings of a great eagle so that she might fly to the place prepared for her in the wilderness where she would be taken care of for a time, times, and a half time out of the serpent's reach. Then from his mouth, the serpent spewed water like a river to overtake the woman and sweep her away with the flood. 
But the earth helped the woman by opening his mouth and swallowing the river that the dragon had spewed out of his mouth. Then the dragon was enraged at the woman and went off to wage war against the rest of her offspring, those who keep God's commands and hold fast their testimony about Jesus. So when we begin to study Revelation 12, we were introduced to three characters, a dragon, a woman, and a child. And in the three weeks that we've been together, we've discovered that the dragon is clearly identified as Satan, and he was supposed to look like a dragon because it's like a hideous monster-like depiction. The woman is a picture of uh, the messianic community, not just Mary, who literally gave birth to Jesus, but everybody who has had a part through the years of bringing Christ into the world and taking Christ out to the world. The woman is the church. And the child, of course, is Jesus Christ, whom we sing to, sing about, and preach every single Sunday for the past 21, 21 centuries. So if this is your first Sunday at Hope Point, I want to tell you that you have joined us in the middle of a huge war. Not a, not a war like a business meeting that went bad, but a war that's in heaven, not a war on earth. And a war that involved a major defeat to Satan, which is glorious news. Here's how the war was described two weeks ago. War broke out in heaven, verse 7. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back. But the dragon was not strong enough. The great dragon was hurled to the earth, the accuser of our brothers and sisters. He accuses us before our God day and night has been hurled, hurled down. Last week, or the last time we were in this passage, we said that in some mystical way that is not overly clear to us, prior to the coming of Jesus Christ on earth, Satan had access to God in heaven. And his purpose of being in heaven, or, or his intention there, was to use every moment of his time there to accuse us, to hold up our record of how unloving we were to God, to one another, how selfish we were, how lustful we were, how greedy we were, accusation after accusation. And if there's any one thing about God, he loves truth more than anything else, so in no way would he deny those accusations. They were all true. We had failed to love God. We had failed to love each other. So rather than trying to bury the truth, God sent Jesus Christ to earth to die for all of the accusations that Satan brought against us. And on every page of their life where the accusation of disobedience was true, God wrote in red ink, forgiven. For me, 61 years of living, every second of my life, blood red, forgiven. And Meredith and the band are going to lead us in the first song after I finish preaching about the power of the blood. I want you to remember when you're singing that, remember about the accuser of your souls has been cast down. I received a letter after I preached that message, War in Heaven, three weeks ago. One of my favorite letters ever. It was one because it's handwritten. That's rare, isn't it? 
got a handwritten letter. I won't read all of it to you, but just the gist of it. Um, dated September 25th. Dear Richard, last Sunday your sermon was entitled War in Heaven. It touched me so deeply. I felt like the sermon was about my entire life. The message was for me. I felt like the Holy Spirit speaking strongly in my heart. It was though my dark sunglasses had been removed. I was seeing things so clearly for the first time in my life that Satan, who had accused me all of my life that said I'd had no access to God, had been defeated. So hallelujah. The accuser of your life, that you probably have felt accusations even coming to church today. In fact, she wrote in her letter how difficult it was to get to church that day, feeling like because of conflict that she shouldn't come to church that day, and she came, and her life was changed. So I'm sure you have felt the accuser today. It's good news that Satan has been thrown down. All the accusations against your life have been covered in the blood of Christ. But now that he's on earth, he's more angry than ever. Therefore rejoice, you heavens, and you who dwell in them, but woe to the earth and the sea, because the devil has gone down to you. He is filled with fury, because he knows that his time is short. Satan is a defeated foe. He knows what's going to happen to him at the end of Revelation. He knows the fire that awaits him. He knows the pit that awaits him. But what he wants to do between now and the end of history is to destroy as many people as he can and to cause them to suffer the same fate that he is going to suffer. You know, by the end of 1943, it was pretty clear that Hitler and the Nazis were going to, were going to lose the Second World War. Germany's military leaders knew that defeat was on the horizon. By the end of 1943, Mussolini was overthrown in Italy, and the Anglo-European forces had already uh, had invaded Italy, and the Russians were far into Central Europe. And all of Hitler's generals in the East said, we should surrender and stop the war. And Hitler said, no, we're going to keep what we have won and for the next 18 months, he led his men and led the entire world into 18, a year and a half more of needless death, even though he knew he was going to lose. I know we have probably seen episodes on the television where somebody who's committed a heinous crime is trapped in a, maybe a building or a house surrounded by law enforcement, and he's going to die. He knows he's going to lose, but rather than surrendering, he just shoots and shoots and shoots, seeing if he can destroy more police officers and more civilians, even though his life is about to be eliminated. No conscience, he just wants to kill. This is what Satan looks like at the end of Revelation chapter 12. This is how <clears throat> Vern Poitras says it, a professor in Philadelphia at Westminster Seminary. Having failed to destroy Christ, the dragon now tries to destroy the people of Christ. The goal of Satan is to annihilate the church. 
And it is amazing to me when I watch young people by the hordes leave the church in our culture and generation. They do not think it's a big deal. They'll have lots of excuses of why they're leaving the church. But it is because of Satan eliminating them from the battle, eliminating them from the body of Christ. His objectives, every year as he sets out, as a business manager would set out his objectives, is to annihilate righteousness in the land. And that's what the final five verses of Revelation is about, the attempt of Satan to destroy righteousness in the land. The goal of Satan is to destroy the witness of the church, to discourage you through suffering, or to, desert, or to deceive you through false teaching. His aim is to stop our hearts from worshiping, our bodies from serving, and our mouths from witnessing. One more quote. The cost of following Jesus is harassment by the most evil voice in the world, but the joy of following Jesus is overcoming evil by the help of heaven's king. So in verse 13 of Revelation chapter 12, we begin to see the help that's given to the woman who's pursued by the dragon. When the dragon saw that he'd been hurled to the earth, he pursued the woman who had, been given, who had given birth to the male child. The woman was given the two wings of a great eagle so that she might fly to the place prepared for her in the wilderness where she would be taken care of for a time, times, and a half time out of the serpent's reach. Again, if you're a person who comes in here and says, I insist on interpreting everything in Revelation literally, then at some point between now and the end of history, you are looking for a great conflict at some place in the Middle East where a woman is being chased by a dragon into the wilderness and is about to be attacked, and all of a sudden she sprouts wings and flies away. If Revelation is only to be taken literally. But this is not, to, this is a metaphor. This is apocalyptic literature where God is trying through the use of metaphor to talk about his fatherly love, his interest, his care, like an eagle caring for her young. God attends to us every detail of our life when we're being harassed and chased by our adversary, the devil. I have been told before that the wings of an eagle pound for pound, are stronger than the wings of an airplane. Long and wide so they can soar high and long distances. They're able to pick up prey that's twice their body weight. And their gripping strength is 10 times that of an adult human hand. So when the Bible says that you have been given strength of an eagle, it's saying that God, in the middle of your weakness, is giving you the capacity to endure and serve far greater than you could on your own. There's a beautiful scene in the Old Testament. It occurred about three months after Israel had escaped their slavery in Egypt, had gone through the Red Sea, and were now camped at the foot of Mount Sinai. Moses is going up to receive the Ten Commandments. And while he's there, God said, I want you to tell the people of Israel this message in addition to the law. Moses went up to God, Exodus 19, and the Lord called to him from the mountain and said, this is what you're to say. 
Tell the people of Israel, you yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. So on the night that God rescued Israel, there they were trapped by the Red Sea in front of them, the strongest army in antiquity behind them, ready to slaughter them. And God made a way through the sea The metaphors, he gave them wings of an eagle. He gave them capacity that was not their own in order to survive and endure and serve the living God. That's what it means to be given the wings of an eagle. You have much greater strength because of the help of God. Maybe John was thinking not about that verse. Maybe he was thinking about this other verse about eagle's wings in Deuteronomy. For the Lord's portion, Deuteronomy 32, for the Lord's portion, his inheritance is his people. It almost seems like God's getting ripped off. What does God inherit for everything he's doing in life? He inherits you. (laughs) He inherits me. For the Lord's inheritance is his people. In a desert land, he found him. He shielded him and cared for him. He guarded him as the apple of his eye, like an eagle that stirs up its nest and hovers over its young, that spreads its wings to catch them and carries them aloft. Again, the picture of God so intimately involved in the details of our life that he hovers like an eagle over the nest, helping us to fly. Many people have struggled. I did a bit with this passage because I did as much research as I could to find out when uh, the young of eagles, when they leave the nest and they do fall in mid-route, does an eagle swoop them up and protect them? There doesn't seem to be a lot of scientific uh, evidence for that. So maybe the verse is talking about that God does for us even far greater than what an eagle is able to do for her young, just as she is not able to actually rescue them from falling, God is able to rescue us from apostasy. He is able to rescue us from falling away from the faith with the intentional and the intense love that a mother eagle has for her young Whether we know that that happened or not, maybe there's an eagle expert in the group that can tell me, no, that happens all the time. The metaphor, the truth of it is the same. God carries us. He gives us wings like an eagle. He watches over us as an eagle would watch over its young. I was reading this week that if you're on the top of a 10-story building and you had the eyesight of an eagle, 10 stories below, you would be able to see an ant. And the Bible says that here God sees us because we're the apple of his eye. And you may not feel today, you know, it's amazing. When you're in the midst of a difficult trial, the first thing that you say, either inwardly or outwardly, is God does not care for me. He does not see my pain and he's not doing anything about my pain. And the Bible says, learn from the woman in Revelation 12. Learn from the eagle examples of the Old Testament. God sees you. You're the apple of his eye. My, my wife and I this week had our grandson. He came to Camp Richetig for the week. <laughs> and I can assure you that at not one moment 
in the five days he was with us did either. Lisa not know or I not know exactly where it wells was. He's the apple of our eye and intense, very intensely watching every, everything he does. This is the picture of God in Revelation 12 or Deuteronomy 32 or Exodus 16. You may, you may feel today, this is our tendency to say, there's no way he's caring for me. Look how weak I am. Look how much I'm failing. Look how much I'm struggling. And the only way to measure God's involvement in your life right now is if what would you be like if he were not hovering above you like an eagle? If you only knew the intense strength that God is giving you, you would praise his name. He is there and he is seeing and he is producing strength. You know, it's amazing to see God care for us in the wilderness times of our life. There's a story told in Exodus chapter 16. <clears throat> we saw it a few weeks ago. Israel lived in the wilderness for 40 years and every morning God supplied manna right in front of their doorstep. For 40 years, God fed them. Then when Jesus Christ came and began to talk to the crowds, the crowds, they knew that Jesus was boasting that he was equal to God, so they wanted to talk to him about his care for them compared to God's care for Israel in the Old Testament. This is what they asked Jesus. Our ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. So the crowds were saying, hey, this is what God our Father did. What have you done for us? And Jesus responds in John 6, 35. Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. Jesus was telling them, I was that manna in the wilderness. I was with you every moment you traveled in the wilderness, Israel. And he says the same thing to any of you today in your life now. Jesus Christ suffered immeasurably for us on the cross, but rather than just enjoying a retirement on his throne in heaven, every moment of your life, Jesus Christ, with the love of a mother eagle, swoops down, and every second of our suffering that he sees and notices and attends to, he suffers with us in the wilderness, he walks with us in the wilderness, and he provides food of his life and his love and his peace with us in the wilderness. And we're gonna need it because look how... Look at the attacks that we will face in the wilderness. Then from the dragon's mouth, the serpent spewed water like a river to overtake the woman and sweep her away with the torrent. But the earth helped the woman by opening its mouth and swallowing the river that the dragon had spewed out of its mouth. Satan has a big mouth. And out of his mouth comes only one thing, and that is lies, to persuade you to not believe God. I don't know how many of you fought hard to be at church today, but I know you've had the Sundays where so hard to believe God because of the lies coming out the mouth of Satan. I remember, I guess it was probably the first Rocky movie when um, Paulie... Paulie was talking bad about his sister and Rocky was falling in love with Adrian. And he's, he said, hey, Paulie, you got a big mouth. Stop talking about your sister. Hey, Paulie, you got a big mouth. Satan has a big mouth. And out of that mouth 
repeatedly comes lies that destroy. The Bible says in Proverbs 18, the tongue has the power of life and death. Most people in life that are destroyed are destroyed because at some point they believed a lie. God speaks so that we'll have life. Satan speaks so that we will choose death. I feel like I probably have read the Bible as much as anybody here, but I still cannot get enough of Genesis chapter 3 to see the importance and the power of words when the dragon Satan came to Eve, the woman in the garden, with words to cause her to doubt the word of God. Genesis 3.1, Satan said to Eve, did God really say, has God really spoken? Is the Bible really true? Can you really trust what you hear in church preaching from the Bible? And once Eve began to say, I don't know if there's such a thing as truth. Once she began to think that way, Satan had her. And then he told her, you will not certainly die. You can do this, it will not harm you. You can live this way, it will not hurt your marriage. You can engage in this, it will not result in your destruction. You will not die if you rebel against God. And how many people? How many people are being destroyed because they believe that? I will not die if I choose this direction in my life. The greatest battle in culture is ultimately about truth. Satan persuades the world to believe that anything is true except what God has said is true. The world will believe anything nowadays except the truth. So when the world believes that right is wrong and that wrong is right, you'll know that there is an increased activity in the work of of Satan. And it's shocking the damage that occurs when people begin to believe that wrong is right and that right is wrong. Remember a few weeks ago, we saw a third of the world destroyed by Satan's words. Revelation 9, a third of mankind was killed by three plagues of fire, smoke, and sulfur that came out of their mouths. John had seen a mysterious vision of 200 million lion-like demon-possessed workers, and it was from their mouths that a third of mankind died. When we arrive in chapter 16 in a few weeks, we're going to again see the power of demonic controlled speech. Then I saw three impure spirits that looked like frogs. They came out of the mouth of the dragon, out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet. They are demonic spirits that perform signs, and they go out to the kings of the whole world to gather them for the battle of the great day of God Almighty. So in the end times, when we do see the chaos that leads to the end of the world, The Bible says that chaos will be produced and will be led by demonically inspired rhetoric. So when you hear powers in our generation throwing out threats, 
flippantly about nuclear war, the Bible says there will come a day when demonically inspired rhetoric will gather all the kings of the world to fight the last fight of history. As never before, the dragon is using words to deceive and destroy and to try to annihilate the voice of righteousness. You can look throughout our culture, political leaders, university professors, corporate leaders, believing and promoting the most extreme lies. That's what feels different about the evil in our culture today. It feels different. I heard an 80-year-old pastor say it feels different even for him. And gosh, he has lived through, look how many generations and decades he's lived through. And he said, this evil feels different because of the willingness of people to believe in the absurd. I mean, they're believing in stuff that's not even confusing. It's not unclear at all. Majority of the world is believing things that are boldly wrong and confidently clear that wrong is right. You know, in the beginning, the serpent led the woman astray with words, and the Bible says in the end, he will seek to lead the woman astray with words. We saw this in the book of, at the beginning of Revelation in our study. It's amazing. I went back and looked at how many of the seven churches in the book of Revelation got off track because of words. You might think that I would be hyper-vigilant when I talk about that it is false teaching that ultimately will bring the world down. But look how many references there are in the first, in chapters two and three in the book of Revelation to the seven churches brought down by words. And look at where these words came from. Again, all from chapters two and three. Satan's synagogue, Satan's throne, and Satan's deep things. Even the very writer of Revelation is on the island of Patmos because of the government's rejection of his words. This is what John wrote that early church. Do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard is coming, and even now is already in the world. It's interesting that the, the person of the Antichrist who we'll look at next week in chapter 13, the word Antichrist is not even used in the book of Revelation. It's only used here in the book of 1 John. And so there are many anti-Christ, many opposing Christ in the world, and they oppose Christ through false teaching. Do not be deceived, dear church. The end of the world, the breakdown of decency, and many will fall away from the church all because of false teaching. We would tremble today if we had an aerial shot of the nation and to look at how many places, how many stages, how many pulpits around the country where what is being taught as truth is not true 
but it's false. And churches are filled with people who come and are trusting that the one who's speaking is telling them that which is true when it is false. And these people from the community are drawn to these great churches because of the music, because maybe a charismatic, compelling personality. And they come and these churches do not preach about the cross, about the blood, about the suffering of Christ, the call to be holy, the need to confess sin. I listened to a series of pastors this week talking about why they don't talk about sexual sin in the pulpit. And each one of them said, my calling is something different. People are struggling to know how to raise their family, how to endure difficult work situations, and that's what I'm called to do. And it was pastor after pastor not preaching the cross and the blood of Christ. So yeah, there's a lot of churches that Satan would enjoy for you to be a part of because you will be lulled into away from holiness, away from world missions, away from God himself. But the Bible says that no matter what happens, the, the Lord will help his true church stay faithful. Revelation 12, 16, but the earth helped the woman by opening its mouth and swallowing the river that the dragon had spewed out of its mouth. You know, the Bible says, if it were not for the Lord's providence, that even the elect would be deceived in the end of times in Matthew 24. So here the Bible says, when the torrent of false teaching pervades the culture, God will enable the woman, the church, the true church to stay faithful. As we've seen many times in the book of Revelation, I think the writer here is thinking back to the Old Testament when he says the earth swallowed up the adversaries of God. Numbers chapter 16, a group of rebels came against Moses and Aaron and told them, you are not the true spokesman for God. What you're saying is not of the Lord. And Moses said, Moses was angry, God was angry. And Moses said, I'm going to give you this test to know whether or not I am a spokesman for God and this is how you will know. And he said this to the rebels. If these men die a natural death, then the Lord has not sent me. I'm not a, a true preacher. But if the earth opens its mouth and swallows them, then you will know that these men have treated the Lord with contempt by rejecting the words of God. Fairly specific test, wasn't it? And here's what happened. As soon as he finished saying all this, the ground under them split apart and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed them in their households together with their possessions. They went down alive into the realm of the dead with everything they owned. The earth closed over them and they perished and were gone from the community. At their cries, all the Israelites around them fled shouting, the earth is going to swallow us too. I imagine it was a scary day in Israel to see an earthquake swallow up the rebels of God. So what can we learn from that passage? 
is that God will move heaven and earth to bring his church home. All those who are not believing in Christ and are not true followers of the Lord will fall away. But all of those who are opposed by the dragon and truly believe in Jesus Christ, if God has to, he will literally cause the earth to open up to swallow the enemies of God that we will not fall away from following the Lord. If there's one last enemy that we want God to swallow, if there's one last adversary that we want God to conquer, and if there's one last evil that we want God to eliminate, it certainly is that of death. And God said, I will one day swallow that up as well. This is how Paul encouraged the church in Corinth. 1 Corinthians 15, listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep. We will not all die. But we will all be changed. In a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable. And we will be changed. And then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. We hope you've enjoyed this podcast from Hope Point Church in Spartanburg, South Carolina. If you would like to learn more about us or give to this ministry, please go to our website at hopepoint.org. We hope you can join us again next week.